This is The Sweeper, the proper pan-European football podcast where we cover absolutely all of the lovable leagues from across the continent. The Sweeper is hosted by Tom Midler and Lee Wingate and it's brought to you by FotMob. In this bonus episode of The Sweeper, we're speaking to Matt Walker, the author of Europe United, about his mission to watch a football match in all 55 UEFA countries within one season. Hello and welcome back, dear listeners, to another bonus episode of The Sweeper. We're back for the second pod in our mini-series with Matt Walker, the author of Europe United, the man who watched a live football match in all 55 UEFA countries in the space of a year. Last time we looked at the first leg of Matt's journey, his trips to Georgia, Iceland, the Faroes, Norway and Sweden. So if you haven't listened to that yet, we'd highly recommend you do so first. Today, though, we're back for the second leg. Finland, Estonia, Kazakhstan, Russia and Belarus. Before we get started, let's welcome back the man himself. Matt, hello. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously enjoying watching the Euros and live football on our screens. I'm looking forward to taking you through the most easterly parts of my uh, pan-European journey. What have been the, the standout moments from the Euros for you so far? Because I know that you've been keeping close tabs on all the games. I think you're trying to watch all 51 from, from looking at your Twitter feed. So, so what stood out to you so far? It's just so enjoyable seeing fans in stadiums watching what's generally been quite a quite a positive attacking tournament. So yeah, I've enjoyed the sort of the thrills of uh, you know sort of Portugal against Germany and earlier on in the tournament, Netherlands against uh, Ukraine. And who are you tipping to go all the way and, and win the whole thing? Well, I backed France before the tournament, and I've seen nothing to suggest that I'm gonna. I'm going to be too far off with that with that tip. I think they've got the deepest squad, and that's going to be really important when we come through to the sixth and seventh games of the tournament. I, I don't really see any real outsiders coming through from this from this tournament. I think it'll be one of the usual suspects that wins it, and I think France are my uh, are my favourites for a good reason. And what about our country, England, after that drab performance against Scotland on Friday? Well, England tend to go out to the first good team they face, and I think that will happen again in this in this tournament, possibly in the possibly in the second round but you know at least England with four points are almost certainly through to the through to the second round so that's that's one positive and I and I think having a you know quite a uh, a drab performance against against Scotland will will maybe motivate the players a little bit for the for the next few games Let's get stuck straight into the, the journey, the reason why we're here, the second leg of your, your mission to watch a game in all 55 uh, European countries. We ended the first leg, the first pod we did with you in Sweden. Next off, you went to Finland, but not to the mainland. You went to the Orland Islands. For our listeners who are not aware, this is an archipelago of around 6,700 islands situated between Sweden and Finland. They speak Swedish, but it is an autonomous region of Finland. It sounds like an interesting place, Matt. What was the thinking behind your decision to go there? I'd read about um, IFK Mariahan um, being what they called the Finnish Leicester. So they're the uh, club from the, the main town in the in the Orland Islands. And they'd actually won the, the Finnish title for the very first time in 2016, the year before I 
started my travel. So it was one of those clubs that I really wanted to visit. They were the reigning Finnish champions. They were in the, a really obscure part of part of Europe. And, and I, and I realised I could journey there quite nicely um, from Sweden and then move on to Estonia afterwards. And what was it like in the islands itself? Did it feel... I mean, you just come from Sweden. Did it feel like you were, were going to an extension of Sweden or did it feel a little bit different? I would say it feels different from anywhere else I've been to in Europe. It's, it's, a, it's a large number of islands. I think it's about 7,000. And they're very low slung. They're only, the, the maximum height is only a few, a few metres above, above, above sea level. And they've got quite, quite, quite pretty inlets you can cycle and walk around. It's really seen as a, it's, it's, it's really a Swedish and a Finnish holiday destination. They get most of their income income from from tourism but it certainly didn't feel like a place to go and watch top division football particularly going to watch the the, the reigning champions as i've mentioned to you before i'm reading each five chapters before we do each pod so i haven't read the whole book yet it's a deliberate tactic but i'm, I'm staying disciplined is this the only island club that you visited throughout your your 55 nations i mean obviously i go to the likes of the likes of malta and cyprus which are obviously uh, island countries um, but I think I think given that this was you know sort of off the mainland, I, th- I, th- I think it probably had a had a certain rarity to it. You had a discussion with the Mariaham director Peter Madsen. He was explaining some of the logistical challenges that the club face. He said that they leave 11:30 p.m. the night before to take the ferry to their uh, their away games. When they play in the north of Finland, it's a it's a minimum of 36 hours each way. As it was, you saw them play a home game against Ilves from Tampere. Uh, talk us through that experience and, and how it compared with the other Nordic nations you visited. I think what you just brought about the, the ferry was one of the very important things because that's how I travelled to the Orland Islands and that's really what made their success, IFK Mariam's success, so noteworthy because they had to travel every single away game by, by, by ferry. I, I thought the match itself was, was perhaps a, quite a few notches down from the previous two leagues I'd, I'd watched, uh, Sweden and, and, and Norway. Um, it, it, it was a bit more base football, quite a lot of long balls played. Um, and when you look at the sort of the calibre of the players, there weren't too many um, that would be getting close to being an international standard. But I found the atmosphere really quite homely. It was um, you know, quite, quite a low attendance, I think probably in the low, low, low thousands, but there were some people watching the football from sort of a grassy knoll next to the main stand, eating sausages and drinking beer while watching the game. And I think that, that really brought through how it was, you know, such an important part of the community in in, in Mariaham and how it must have been like the, the greatest occasion ever to happen to that holy holiday town when they won the league. I must admit, I found your Finland chapter probably the funniest of any I've read so far, uh, particularly the incident where you dropped your own ice cream and then caught it and were, uh, where, where it was hiding in the doorway, licking it out of your hands. Um, you also wrote in this chapter... My hostel was hostile, busy and expensive. A single room with a bathroom shared by 20 others, seemingly staying for the annual door slamming competition. Um, you obviously stayed in a lot of places on your trip, Matt. Where did you have the worst accommodation experience? This was up there. Uh, I, I mean, it, it, it was also the cost, which I think I think I put, it was 54 euros for a hostel room. I mean, it's an expensive place for them, particularly during the, uh, during the, during the summer months. I did stay in the self-styled best hotel in Taraz in Kazakhstan, and that wasn't cheap, actually. I mean, the accommodation in Kazakhstan is far, far more expensive than you would expect in such an otherwise reasonable country. And um, <laughs> that was quite hilarious in that my mattress was about an inch thick and basically felt like I was sleeping on a wooden plank. 
and then basically half of the uh, bathroom fittings came down in the middle of the night woke me up i thought a burglar had come in so that was that was quite a uh, quite a rough experience in the southern part of part of kazakhstan but i have to say this hostel in 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 finland was one of the one of the worst places i stayed which was completely in contrast to the to the to the beautiful uh, collection of collection of islands that i explored before and after the game I suppose that sort of feeds into the next question then, which is from a, a Twitter follower, Alfie Wilson. He asks, would you recommend an Orland summer holiday or is it too expensive? I would recommend a trip, actually. I, mean, I think that, that hostel was very expensive, but it was in peak summer season. If you could go slightly out of season and treat a slightly better, slightly better deal. And of course, the accommodation, because it's a family holiday place for Swedes and Finns, it's, it's generally larger sort of airbnbs etc which weren't really suitable for me traveling on my own but i'd really recommend actually starting in stockholm because it's a great city to visit and get the the ferry about six hours to the orland islands then move on to either mainland finland or estonia afterwards because that that was a, that was a great trip i enjoyed the ferry journeys and i enjoyed the orland islands a lot you took one of those routes yourself you moved down to estonia afterwards and to Tallinn. your match was infonet versus tameka before we get onto that game, can you tell us about the world record that Infonet set not too long before your visit? I think they matched it, if I'm if I'm if I'm correct. They they, they matched the uh, I think it was the highest score in a competitive match, which I think is thirty six nil. Um, and um, they, yeah, the, the, the famous one is Arbroath versus Bonnet Ford in, in in Scotland. But 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 yeah, they they managed to uh, rack up thirty six goals in a in a cup game, which was which was which was quite something. I think there is another record as well. I think you're going to have to look this one up on Google, but I think it might have been in Madagascar where one team basically refused to play um, and they <laughs> the other teams kept scoring goals even though the other team wasn't playing. But in an actual competitive game, I think this is the joint record. Yeah, and I think you mentioned in the book as well that that record had stood for 130 years. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> quite some achievement to match that in a, in a cup game. If you look at the UEFA country coefficients, the three Baltic leagues are all very close to the bottom. Estonia most so. It's down in 53rd place out of 55. Only Andorra and San Marino below it. What was the quality like at the game you saw? It wasn't that great, to be honest. Um, I mean, there were a few Estonian internationals that were playing for uh, Infonet. Um, and, you know, they were, they were clearly some of the better players on, on, on show. Yeah, I mean, Estonian football is I mean, it's, it, like a lot of the, the Northern European and, and, and Baltic countries that, you know, ice hockey is a very important part of their culture. Maybe football isn't their, isn't, isn't their number one sport. So, And of course, small populations. So you would always expect countries with small populations to, to, to maybe be a little bit weaker. But I have to say it's one of the sort of most enjoyable games, I think, throughout my entire trip, just because of the climate. It was a beautiful 27 degrees I could get a beer and watch it, uh, watch the football match uh, with my beer. Um, it was quite an entertaining, entertaining match. It was, it was, it was two one, and and yeah, I could take the take the bus there and got a got a, got a, got a taxi back to the beautiful central part of Tallinn afterwards. So it was a really enjoyable experience, even though it wasn't quality wise the best match I saw. One of the players for Infonet that day was Albert Prosser. He came to hold a rather unique position in the context of your your mission, didn't he? Can you tell the listeners what that was? So yeah, he was the only player I would actually see play twice uh, for uh, two different clubs uh, during my during my trip. He he was transferred in the winter transfer window to Valletta in Malta, and that would be one of the teams I saw in, in Malta the, the the following 
the following year. So yeah, it was a, it was a rather curious, uh, <laughs> rather curious record that Prosa held. Did you recognise that instantly when you were in Malta, or was it a case of you were, you know, you recording the team lineups at the end and you you noticed the overlap? Yeah, I did. I did quite a lot of preparation for each game I saw. So I'd often look at the you know, previous lineups and I noticed that they had an Estonian striker, Valletta, and, I, and I, I checked my records and he did play in this in this particular game in Tallinn, which was which, which was great. I actually kept records of all of the players who, who appeared for all of the teams that I saw. And it's, it's quite nice in the Euros, actually, uh, picking up a few of the players that progressed. So uh, Yaromchuk, who's now leading the line for Ukraine, was a was a young player at Ghent at the at the time. We'll come on to Belgium a bit later in this this trip. And, and Salah, who starred yesterday for, for for Hungary, actually appeared in the, in the Super League when I was there. So it's quite nice tracking the progress of some of these players. It's obviously, some of them come on to become much better players, and others fade into obscurity. Absolutely. Um, scheduling meant that you bypassed Lithuania and Latvia. You came back to those later. And you made the journey next to one of UEFA's most easterly outposts, Kazakhstan. I think it's a country that relatively few people know much about. What were your expectations heading there? And what were your initial impressions of the country when you landed in Almaty? Yeah, I wasn't really sure what, what, what Kazakhstan would be like. I had visited Uzbekistan a few years before, just you know, just on, on, on sort of a holiday from, 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 from the UK. But... Kazakhstan is a lot richer than Uzbekistan, so I, I wanted to know really how that wealth translated to the to, to the local population. And I think one thing I noticed when I got to the country was there is a clear split between um, those with a Russian heritage in Kazakhstan and the ethnic Kazakhs who who who, who have always lived there. There was a lot of translocation during the Soviet Union. A lot of that to parts of parts of Kazakhstan, which is a vast country, the ninth largest ninth largest in the world and I think it was that contrast which really uh, became um, became quite clear as I spent longer and I actually visited four cities in, in Kazakhstan starting in the, uh, the the southerly city of Almaty then moving to Taraz where I saw my game and then I pushed on to Shimkent and the capital Astana which is now known as Nur Sultan a bit bit later on. I've got to ask then um there are football clubs based in Almaty. You've got the, the current reigning champions, FC Kairat. You took a train, as you said, to Taraz, which is eight hours west. Why did you do that? Because on the face of it, it seems like you were making perhaps life a bit harder for yourself or adding more travel than, than you needed to. So why did you choose Taraz for your game? The Kazakh league is actually probably the most widely dispersed of any in Europe. Not only is it the ninth largest country, but there isn't that sort of four or five clubs in the capital city effect that you get in quite a lot of countries. So actually, Taraz was the closest club I could go and see the weekend I was in Kazakhstan because both Astana and Kairat were playing away in even more obscure places um, that particular weekend. So I ended up in, in Taraz, which is a city that used to be on the Silk Road, but is rarely visited by, by Kazakhs, let alone, let alone football travellers. It seems like you met quite a character on the train. You talk about a friend that you made called Eric, who uh, not only helped you a lot, but also paid for you to have a haircut when you when you arrived in Taraz. Uh, how important was he in uh, in making your time in Kazakhstan as enjoyable as it was? Oh, Eric was an absolute absolute legend. I mean, I was very lucky to meet somebody who spoke such good such good English. He worked in an international uh, business with uh, lots of foreigners who spoke very good 
very good English. And he was basically my host throughout my time in, in Taraz and paid for virtually everything, which I felt quite embarrassed by, given, you know, sort of the disparity between Western European and Kazakh. Kazakh incomes, um, but it was his job to make my time there as, as successful as, as possible. And, and you know, actually, I sent him a few messages after uh, visiting Therese on, on WhatsApp, and he was he was just you know just glad that I had a good time in his in his host country and his host city. He even paid for my match ticket, which I, I didn't feel too bad about, given it was the cheapest match ticket I saw at just uh, seventy pence for adults and twelve pence for children. Wow, that's a uh... That's you know. Wonder how many uh, how many Taraz tickets you could get for your average Arsenal ticket in the Premier League. Then probably a, probably a good few seasons worth. Yeah, I reckon so. Probably probably about hundred. <laughs> Given the average ticket, Arsenal's probably around about seventy pounds on the foot. You saw Taraz play the twenty thirteen Champions October. What was the game like itself? I mean, it was pretty brutal. It was just a really. I mean, the pitch first of all. Taraz kind of bounced between the top two divisions in, in, in Kazakhstan. Um, the pitch was pretty awful, um, and the style of football was really direct. Lots of lots of long balls played to to sort of target men up target men up front. It wasn't it wasn't the greatest game. Um, it was it was a one one draw in the end. Um, I did enjoy actually tracking a player who was somebody I was fortunate enough to meet uh, through through Eric actually. Uh, Mohamed Diara, who's a Guinea international playing for playing for Taraz. So it was quite nice when you actually met a player before the match, and then you could track his performance. You know, he had a pretty a, a pretty solid game playing in playing holding midfield. But yeah, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't the best uh, footballing experience, but as a cultural experience, it was fascinating. Next up from Kazakhstan, it was off to Russia. I did have a good chuckle reading the book when you said that the embassy in London reacted suspiciously to your. Uh, request for a visa to travel through Yekaterinburg and Kazan. How did you manage to convince them in the end? I actually got a telephone call through to my home number. Uh, and I don't get many telephone calls through to my home number, but I must have listed it on the um, visa application form. It's normally people trying to sell me insurance uh, deals. And instead it was the, it was the Russian embassy in London. <laughs> so I just had to I had to explain that I was doing this you know pan-European football challenge. I was traveling from Kazakhstan and you know your Kettering Bird or Kazan were likely to be the two easiest places to go and watch a top division Russian match. And I think after that spiel, <laughs> he realized that I wasn't there for any any surreptitious reasons. And this was of course before the Russia World Cup when I think things eased up a little bit. You know, you're allowed to travel to Russia without a uh, visa if you had a you had a ticket through the fan ID system, so people were being a little bit a little bit cautious beforehand. But yeah, it was quite an amusing story before I even got into Russia. You alluded to the distances in Kazakhstan. Of course, I don't think you really get any bigger distances than in Russia. And it seemed from reading the book that uh, your travels within Russia were a bit arduous and stressful. Can you tell us where you travelled to in Russia? Yeah, so I left uh, Astana, which is now Nursatal in Kazakhstan, and then flew to Yekaterinburg. I was only in Yekaterinburg for a, for a night because there was no game there. So then I had to um, take a propeller plane, which was, I think, the only propeller plane I took on my trip in some pretty terrible turbulence through to Ufa, uh, who was my first top division host in Russia. And after watching a match in Ufa, I decided to watch a match in Tula, which is uh, about so two hours south of Moscow. But I had to travel to the airport in, in, in Ufa, then fly to Moscow, then, then go around the Moscow metro and then take a take a train out to Tula the following day so it was it was pretty uh it was pretty hardcore and 
and uh, I was a pretty tired person after watching those two games in two days. Let's start with the first one then and see if it was worth the reward of all that hassle. It was Ufa versus Spartak Moscow. What did you make of it? Well, it was my first nil-nil of my journey. And uh, it was uh, basically Ufa, the, uh, the home club, qualified for the Europa League a few, a few times, packing the defence and playing for a nil-nil from the very beginning. And Spartak, obviously the most uh, popular club in, in Russia, had a lot of fans there, but they were... They were disappointed when the team couldn't, couldn't break down a pretty resolute Ufa side. But but for me, it was interesting. It was basically Spartak Day in Ufa. I mean, all of the sort of closet Spartak Moscow fans, as well as the fans that travelled across from uh, the Russian capital, were all out in their red colours, you know, supporting the, the, the Manchester United of, of Russia, really. So it was, it was quite a nice experience to have that um, rather bizarre scenario of basically everybody supporting the away team. As you said, you then went up to Tula, where you saw Arsenal Tula versus Kabarovsk. Before we come on to that match, though, was it? Did you choose to fit in that game just because you happened to be be travelling in that direction, or was it the other way around? You you travelled that way because you wanted to go to the game. It made sense. I was going to have to travel sort of west towards Moscow anyhow, and I noticed the games fell on successive days, and I thought, you know, why not? Let's go to Tula. It's just a couple of hours outside of Moscow. I'd already visited Moscow on a, on a, on a, on a previous trip, so I wasn't, I wasn't keen on spending too much time in the Russian capital. So, yeah, when I went, went down to Tula, not in a place that sees a lot of tourists either. And their opponents were, were Kabarovsk, who I think were... Uh, well, I think they're quite an intriguing club just purely because of their, their geographical situation. Perhaps you can, can tell the listeners a little bit about, about where Kabarovsk are from. So Kabarovsk are from the far east in Russia. Um, and I don't think you could get uh, further away uh, playing a league match than playing a club in the further western part of, of, of Russia. Um, I think I think there are some possibilities in the in the, in the French League Cup where they uh, invite you might know this they invite clubs from the likes of New Caledonia reunion to play, which is which is which is, which is brilliant. Um, but yeah, the Sky Cup have just got promoted, um, and they had. I think it was 20 fans at this game, but uh, my uh, contact Nikita reliably told me that they wouldn't have travelled across because it would have taken five days by train to travel from Kavarovsk to uh, Tula, which is quite extraordinary. (laughs) Um, But uh, they didn't have a particularly successful campaign. Uh, Those long away trips uh, meant Kavarovsk were relegated. I don't think they won a single away game that entire season. I think you mentioned as well in the book, didn't you, that they, they must have trouble attracting players to the, the very far east of Russia as well. Oh, I mean, definitely. I mean, I, I mean, you might say the same for, for some clubs, perhaps in, in more remote parts of England. But I mean, trying to attract players to cover off is, 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 is a pretty tricky, uh, it's a pretty tricky sell. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was an intriguing match from uh, that perspective, and it was really helped because my contact Nikita, who I met in uh, Ufa the previous day, he managed to get me in using a spare season ticket. So I was able to sit with him and his father amongst all of the hardcore Tula fans, which was which was a great experience because it made it was a really sort of fervent home fan feel as opposed to the the sort of slightly more distant feel at the game the previous day. Because you saw two games in Russia. Um, I'm quite interested to know how you rate the standard because it is a top 10 
European league, according to the, you know, the UEFA rankings and, and outside of the top five, it's along with, you know, the Netherlands, Belgium and Portugal. So what did you, what did you make of the standard there generally? I mean, I, th- I thought defensively uh, the teams were very solid there. I just saw the one goal in the two games that I, that, that, that I, that I saw and obviously, apart from Sparta, they didn't see any of the any of the top matches. I think where they struggle, and this this might come through to the international team as well, is creativity. I don't see a lot of creativity on the players on the pitch. You know, a lot of the forwards were uh, you know, sort of imported from, from from other other countries. But yeah, I think that comes through a little bit. I think the teams are naturally a bit a bit defensive, and, and perhaps it's not the most exciting league to watch because of that. But 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 defensively, very solid. Lastly, in this leg of your your journey, you're off to Belarus. And we mentioned in the last pod we did with you, Matt, that The Guardian wrote an article about your trip, which really sort of lent some legitimacy to what you were doing in the eyes of of foreign media and foreign clubs. Bate Borisov, one of the biggest clubs in Belarus and the winner of 11 consecutive titles at the time, saw that you were coming and, and tried to invite you to their stadium as the special guest. You said no and went off to Vitebsk instead. Why was that? I, I didn't really want to be influenced by offers from you know sort of bigger clubs. I wanted to go to some of the sort of left field places, Vitebsk, which is the fourth biggest city in in Belarus, sounded quite an intriguing location. And although the game, you know, against Krumkachi didn't look like it would be a classic, you know, you never know with football. You can go to some of these obscure places and see a see a great game, and actually that that turned out to be the case in in, in uh, Vitebsk. Yeah, it sounds like it was really one of the highlights of your trip. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about that game. It ended, was it 2-2, that game, a draw? It did end 2-2. Uh, there was three early goals. Uh, Vitebsk, the home team, went into a, a, a 2-1 lead, which they, they, they took into half-time. And then the real action took place uh, during the second half when the Krumkachi goalkeeper actually scored from his own penalty area, uh, which was quite extraordinary. Um, I don't know how many games you have to see to get a 50-50 chance to see a goalkeeper score, but it, it's got to be in the hundreds, if not thousands. Um, yeah, it was just one of those great moments uh, that I was, yeah, sort of, it, it was just a pleasure to be there, seeing the goalkeeper score with a, a looping clearance. And then even more remarkably, he was then sent off for a professional foul 20 minutes later. <laughs> so I'd seen a, the away goalkeeper be uh, a goal scorer and then the villain um, in a very short period of uh, for a short period of time, and, and the game finished. The game finished two two. Was it a case of the goal? It was a long punt downfield, and his opposite number just misjudged the bounce. Was it? Was it one of those? You, you see them sometimes on old footage of football in the UK, but it, it did have a bit of a retro feel about it. Yet yeah, the ball did take a bit of a skiddy bounce off the grass surface. There'd been a little bit of rain just before the match. That might have had a bit of a factor. And I think the goalkeeper, the home goalkeeper, Gushenko, was a little bit out of position as well. A, a bit like uh, the Scottish keeper a few days ago. Um, but, uh, yeah, obviously it was a, it, it was a, it was a fluke. Um, <laughs> the Krumkachi goalkeeper, Kostikevich, he, he, he probably was just looking to to hit his forwards but uh it was still a remarkable a remarkable goal one nice detail you added in in that description was that he was then replaced by another goalkeeper who was was the chairman's brother is that right yeah so Krumkachi are quite an interesting club i can't go into all the detail here but essentially they're kind of a 
they called it an internet club. They're kind of the hipster choice in uh, in in Minsk, and uh, they do a lot of sort of social media promotion, which is quite unusual with Belarus. Certainly, it was four years ago, where the clubs tend to be owned by sort of large uh, metropolitan organisations or large companies. And yes, they they, they are uh, their second choice goalkeeper was actually yeah <laughs> related to the related to the chairman, and and he was one of those guys who came on during a professional match, and you're thinking. You know, it doesn't look like he's ever played football before. Apparently, according to the football stats websites, he played a couple of games the previous season, presumably when the other goalkeeper was injured. And um, yes, he actually managed to save one shot with his face, which I think was purely by uh, purely by chance. And it was a mir- miracle that he, that he kept a, a, a clean sheet in those uh, remaining minutes after the goalkeeper was sent off. When we were talking pre-pod, you said you had an, an, an extra an extra anecdote um, to tell about this particular this particular incident or the goalkeeper. So do you want to share that with us? Yeah, this didn't make the book because it happened quite a long time after uh, after the match. But, uh, you know, I put a uh, post on Instagram about the goalkeeper scoring and, and the goalkeeper himself, uh, Yevgeny Kostikevich, actually found that post several years later and uh, sent me a message on Instagram saying, thank you for the feedback on my game in English, which was you know, very good. And then he, then he said he, he still had the boots um, from that very match when he scored the goal. And he asked if I would like, uh, like to receive them. He explained that the boots were in really poor condition and that his cat had shat on them. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I'm I'm willing to take any any random package from 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 Belarus. So I sent in my home address. But sadly, I don't know I don't know why. But maybe maybe customs took a look at the boots. They never made it to, to my home. But it was a great conversation with the uh, with the goalie. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's such a shame that wasn't in the book. That's a so made me cry with laughter. That one. Um, you did see another game in Belarus as well, didn't you? So yeah, after Vitebsk got moved uh, to the capital, Minsk, which is a great city to, to visit, very unique with its Stalinist architecture. And um, yeah, I, I saw I saw Dinamo play there in the Shakhtar Stadium, which is uh, a rather decrepit stadium in the southern part of the city. What was that game like? How did it end? It was a bit of a home referee situation with uh, um, Dinamo beating their... Um, uh, opponents, Dnipa Mogilev. Any Belarusians listening will have to uh, excuse my excuse my pronunciation. It was a, it was a, it was sort of a standard two one home win with the uh, the referee certainly siding with the, with the with the home team. But one of the entertaining things about the match was that there was hundreds of people watching the game for free on the hill behind the stadium, and it was a uh, you know you weren't allowed to take drink into the into the game um, and these people were having quite a nice picnic you know bringing their own drink food and watching the, watching the game from the hillside so obviously it was a bit of a it was a bit of a tradition for Dinamo fans to watch the uh, watch the games from there rather than the decrepit stadium all right well Matt I very much enjoy listening to the second leg of your your journey two down we've got nine to go I'm, I'm very much looking forward to hearing more and thanks very much as well for, for sharing that lovely anecdote about the the cat shitting on the football boots that's uh that's made my day I think thanks very much Lee
If you've enjoyed this episode and you want to find out more about match travels across the continent, then get yourself a copy of Europe United. It's available in hardback and paperback from all good bookshops and as an ebook as well. And you can also follow Matt on Twitter at 55 Football Nations. The football is without the two O's, so F-T-B-A-L-L, 55 Football Nations. This has been The Sweeper, the monthly pan-European football podcast. It's recorded and produced in Vienna, Austria by TOB Sports Media and it's brought to you by FOTMOB. Special thanks go to the gentleman creatives in Vienna for their incredible sweeper graphics. You can find their creative design agency at thegentlemancreatives.com.